Before we jump in, I want to thank my friends over at Samaritan Ministries for sponsoring today's podcast. Don't be limited by networks when it comes to choosing your healthcare provider. There is another way. Samaritan Ministries is a community of Christians who pay one another's medical bills without the use of insurance. As a member, you'll have a biblical, affordable way to pay your medical needs where you're free to choose from the doctors, the treatments, and the hospitals that are best for you and your family when and where you need them. After care is received, your medical bills are sent to Samaritan Ministries and they'll notify members to pray and send money directly to you to help you pay those bills. Members also have access to an online community of support and health resources to help keep medical bills and prescription costs low through discounts and fair pricing. Healthcare freedom can be yours today. You can see how by going to SamaritanMinistries.org forward slash dad tired. Again, that's SamaritanMinistries.org forward slash dad tired. Josh, really, really looking forward to our conversation today, man. Before we jump in, I just want to first or maybe be the first to congratulate you. As I'm pulling up the Amazon page, bro, you are number one new release, which I know most guys don't write books just to have a, a red banner near their name. But it does feel good to just know that you're, what you've poured your heart and soul into is resonating with people. And it obviously is. So congratulations on that, man. Thanks, man. I actually did write the book for that express purpose. And now that I have that banner, I'm retiring. <laughs> You're done, dude. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> That's really funny. Yeah, man. So you wrote Death to Deconstruction, Reclaiming Faithfulness as an Act of Rebellion, which has got to be one of the better titles I've heard in a long time. You're from the Pacific Northwest. Our listeners know I just moved from there. Deconstruction is a real trendy word. It's going around a ton these days not just in the Northwest or the West Coast or any coast. It's like becoming a thing all over the Christian community. What made you decide, like, I think I want to have a conversation about this and start writing about this? Well, it happened over what feels like, you know, innumerable conversations with... uh, So I spent a couple of decades traveling around the world as a touring musician and talking about Jesus. I was in a a punk rock band that, and I was and am a Christian. So, you know, I talked about Jesus. And I would have conversations with people my age, people of my generation and, and younger who had come of age in a similar environment as myself. I was raised in the South in a kind of conservative, what I would describe as a fundamentalist backdrop of uh, evangelical Christianity. And I met lots of folks who had similar stories or there were shades that were unique, but the you know the overall tapestry was there. And eventually, I came out to the Pacific Northwest and started working for a church, eventually became a pastor and planted a church. And now I'm having conversations with people who are a lot younger than me, or who are also my age. And they were and are absolutely struggling to keep foot in, just one foot in the church, in the Christian movement, in the way of Jesus. And over the course of so many conversations, both as a musician and then as a pastor, the question that I got all the time as we traded stories, because they would say, well, this is the thing that is hanging me up, or these are the things I feel as if I can't possibly overcome, I would be able to say very sincerely, like, oh, yeah, I've been through that as well. And here's my story. And here's the ugliness that's in, you know, the my personal history. And the question that I got, this is not something I've contrived to sell this book or anything, but the the question that I got was, how in the world are you still a Christian? How did you survive these things? You have, you know, such a, I have all the great reasons to have deconstructed my faith and bailed out on Mm -hmm. Jesus and the church. And 
I went through, you know, a years long process of what we might now call in, you know, the kind of pop culture, spiritual conversation deconstruction, meaning I was wrestling and had lots of doubts and was trying to figure out whether or not I would either kind of reinvent my own spirituality or deconvert altogether and no longer claim Christianity. Mm. And I sat down to write a book full of really thoughtful intellectual arguments for why it makes sense to remain a Christian. And I realized in that process that that book exists, dozens of that book Mm. exist, and that they're really good books. But the book that answers that question, why in the world are you still a Christian, at least from my, I don't mean to sound narcissistic, but from my own unique vantage point, did not exist. So what ended up arriving was this kind of quasi-memoir narrative, but theological, strange little book. Um, and I realized that from at the end of it, I realized that my having gone through deconstruction, having participated in that, I don't know, trend or movement, however you want to describe it, in a really sincere way for a very long time, with one foot in, one foot out, and having arrived where I am today, that <laughs> the book ended up being called Death to Deconstruction. So mm-hmm. the, the people read the title and they think like, oh my gosh, this here's another out of touch evangelical who doesn't know anything about hard problems and doubts with this Bible and with the church. But then, you know, if you read the first few sentences, you'll realize that's not that book. You just alluded to a couple of the things right there at the beginning, but like when, as you're having these conversations with people in your own circles and in the church and friends and community, like what are some of the things that people, are you seeing a theme of people like, how do you reconcile this? Yeah. In the book, I consolidate them into five, what I call great predators. And this is by no means an exhaustive compendium of every single possible issue that derails faith. But over the course of my conversations, and, you know, it's anecdotal, so it's my personal experience, but it's not a super narrow sample size. You know, I've had lots of conversations and traveled a lot. They all seem to take on these really common shapes. One of them is biblical illiteracy, meaning Mm. I don't understand the freaking Bible. I don't know how to read it. I don't know how to reconcile these things in the Bible. I can't make my peace with the ugly things in the scriptures or the supernatural things in the scriptures or the the incredible claims of the Bible, the historicity of Jesus of Nazareth. And so much of that, I would argue, comes down to biblical illiteracy. Not that the issues that we have with the scriptures aren't valid issues and they're real rest. I mean, like I've you know dedicated my life to teaching the Bible, so I understand that it's a very complicated book and understanding it is even more complicated. But so many of those conversations, at least for me personally, came down to, okay, well, I get it. You have these issues and these are real issues, but it's really the way that we're reading the scriptures, not necessarily the scriptures themselves. Hmm. So biblical illiteracy is a huge thing. The problem of evil, if you know God is good and there's so much evil and suffering in the world, how do you work that out? How does that make sense? Politicized Christianity, the ugly face of American evangelicalism, the Western world that has derailed the faith of so many people who came to a point of, if, if this is what it means to be Christian, I just can't, I can't in good faith be a part of this thing anymore. Hypocrisy, uh, the brokenness of people, especially in the church, the failure of Christian leaders and pastors, parents that have disappointed us. And then the other one that I think, is, you know, all these are bad, <laughs> bad things, things like, you know, like evil and politicized faith. But the one that is the 
you know, actually a teaching of Jesus, but just as often derails faith is uh, self-denial. The, the, mm. the invitation of Jesus is to deny yourself before the prerequisite, before you even sign up to follow all the way is you have to mm. deny yourself. Mm. And that didn't sell then and doesn't sell now. <laughs> you know, it's not yeah. just that self-denial is antiquated or old-fashioned. Now it's hateful or oppressive or, mm. or bigoted. The idea that you would deny yourself in the name of something bigger than yourself. So that's not, again, an exhaustive list, but those were the common themes that came up in conversation again and again and again and again. So I made them kind of the the hallmarks of the book. Yeah. I would love to unpack that last one because I thought that was really good. I think that's interesting. It doesn't sell then. It doesn't sell very well now. That's so true, man. And especially in a culture, because that was originally was in a culture where it was kind of there was probably more value on community and doing things together. And now it, we're such an individualized culture that the idea of self-denial, when everything in our culture is saying, dude, do whatever make you feel good. That's a huge one. So I'd love to, for you to unpack, like, what were your thoughts as you wrote that chapter? What, what were some things you were trying to get across? Well, that's kind of like my landmark sermon. The, 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 that's mm. the drum that I beat all the time is the mm. idea of Self-denial. And, you know, you're absolutely right. The culture of the first century was a, um, a high group identity or, you know, like a, a super high value on the tribe, the family, the individual gives themselves over in the service of the, the group, you know, and in America, the Western world in general, but especially in America, we not only are not high group identity, we're individual, hyper individualistic, meaning, you know, the individual takes precedent over yeah. the group. We're not only hyper-individualistic, we just have no paradigm whatsoever for a group identity or a culture of like family. It's not that it's so antiquated it's been left in the first century. In fact, most of the world continues to operate with a high group identity mm -hmm. outside of the West kind of post-enlightenment world. So self-denial is really, really hard for Americans to understand. And it sounds as if I'm being snarky and mean-spirited toward Americans, but it makes a lot of sense. We've been kind of trained from birth to find our place in this hyper-individualistic culture and worldview in which the good of the individual is the highest achievement. That We're reaching for what's best for us and we market it and put it on wall art, you know, like hashtag do what makes you happy and do more of what makes you happy and find your own truth as if truth is, you know, unique to the individual. Right. And you're not allowed to question the individual's truth. It's theirs, you know, it's, and it's, it is unique to them. And so then here comes Jesus with this whole, like, follow me. Yes. But first you have to die. You have to, I mean, his language is like, so, I mean, like hyper alienating divisive, take up your cross or in one of his biographies, take up your cross daily and follow me, which, you know, there's in Christian culture, we kind of romanticize, oh, the cross, it's so cute. But it's essentially like, you know, like suffer your own execution. Mm -hmm. And then you might be able to have what it takes to follow me. Mm -hmm. And the idea of denying yourself is so confusing because really we already have a paradigm for self-denial, but we won't allow it to permeate kind of our spiritual and philosophical conversations outside of superficial things like you know, fitness or diet or something mm -hmm. like that, or even parenting. So here's a, you know, like any half decent parent understands that it's appropriate to afford your child a certain amount of discomfort or pain 
in a controlled, loving environment so that they can learn what's best. And what I mean by that is like to tell them, no, you can't survive on chocolate cake all day long, even if that makes you upset and you don't like the results of that, you know, verdict. But that's what's best. Or, you know, discipline, the idea of like there will be consequences for bad behavior, you know, like because we want what's best for you and this will teach you what's best in the world. That's a form of imposed self-denial. But as adults, we have these other paradigms for self-denial, like if I want to take up this new fitness regime, I won't be able to do whatever it is that I want to do by default. I have to get up early. I have to go run when I don't want to run or lift the heavy weights or whatever it is. Or if you're like, I want to take on this new dietary plan, I can't just do whatever I want to do. My base kind of primal desire is sleep in, don't work out, eat whatever you want. And that's just baseline. It's there all the time. And you have to say no to that very natural, intrinsic part of yourself in service to something bigger than yourself. And we're usually willing to do that for something like fitness or diet. And I'm not saying those are bad things. Those are good things. Mm -hmm. Or in the name of a discipline, like if you want to learn ballet or karate or join the boxing gym, Mm -hmm. you know, athletes uh, or artists understand this, that you can't just do what you want to do at a base, you know, fun, even natural desire, even desires that aren't necessarily wrong, but you have to deny them so that you can apprentice under a master, so that you can learn the the ballet or you can learn how to box or you can learn kung fu, whatever it might be. So we have these paradigms for self-denial and we romanticize them. Like there's a reason that the training montage is everyone's favorite in every Rocky movie or Star Wars or, you know, like Kill Bill, the idea that, oh, they're going out in the woods to learn under a master. And it's, oh man, I want that for myself. We want to give part of ourselves away in service to something great, But then when it enters like the kind of, and I don't even mean this word pejoratively, but the religious conversation, the idea of a spiritual worldview that like, oh, to follow Jesus, he will ask you to deny yourself. He'll ask you to say no to these very authentic, intrinsic desires that you have in order to apprentice under a master. And that, that... just hits the wall. You know, the idea of like self-denial in the name of fitness or even, you know, ballet. It's like, wow, it's beautiful, man. They're doing something incredible. But self-denial in the name of following the way of Jesus is like, oh man, that's oppressive. You know, to deny who you are. Jesus would never ask me to deny myself. He wants me to do whatever I want to do. He wants me to be happy all the time. But, you know, Jesus becomes like that parent who is willing to afford us short-term temporal discomfort and pain in the name of us becoming what's best for ourselves and for everyone else as well, Mm. you know, but that's a tough sell. That was one of the best, most articulated ways of saying that I think I've ever heard. Uh, That was so (laughs) well said. I mean, you you said that so beautifully, man. I've never made those two obvious connections that we live in a world that really does. I mean, we write movies about it and we sing songs about it and we, have TV, like everything we do is like, oh, wow, look what they did. Look what they gave up to accomplish this. But I've never tied that directly to the same exact call that Jesus would call us to, to give up something to be. And I think I was trying to think as you were saying that, like, why? What is it that about the spiritual realm, the religious realm that you get to and you just hit that wall? Why is it that people, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, because I think some people would say, well, I sacrifice diet because I'm going to be healthier and I'm going to look healthier. I'm going to feel better. I sacrifice waking up so I can get up and run earlier and all these things. But like, why would I sacrifice for Jesus? Why would I sacrifice for the way of Jesus? What benefit is that going to do? And you mentioned, you know, it's better for me in the world, but why and how? 
Yeah. I think there's two dimensions to the kind of the way that self-denial becomes lost in translation in the Jesus movement. One of them is quite frankly that we in the West, we have these lenses, you know, hyper-individualism is one of them. And another is American evangelical Christianity, which has often taken a shape that does not resemble the authentic uh, mm-hmm. historic way of Jesus. And I don't mean that to like step on toes or call people. I just mean, you know, it, it, you'd have to be living under a rock. Everyone who has done any time in church circles in America understands that, like all of church history, the the Christian movement, particularly in America, has been punctuated with these really ugly, uh, like, oh, yikes, you know. Um, so that kind of clouds our vision of Jesus' call to self-denial because we are, many of us, and myself included, we are used to an invitation to self-denial that is cruel and mean-spirited and not the loving Mm -hmm. parental, like, yes, I am asking you to die, but it's so that you can live, Mm -hmm. and more the, like, get in line and behave. That was kind of the paradigm I was given is uh, more like... Um, these things are bad, and don't ask questions about it. Just shut up and stand here, and everyone else is bad. We're the good guys, you know, the kind of moral majority fundamentalism that when I was a kid was localized entirely on the right, and now as an adult, it's kind of localized more so on the progressive left. Fundamentalism is always the same thing. It just kind of swings back and Mm -hmm. forth over time. So that's one reason is that we, we have a harder time getting a clear picture of the the true beautiful invitation of Jesus doesn't make it any less daunting or intimidating, but it's kind of been obstructed by our immediate view of cultural Christendom in the West. And the other thing I think is that unlike, say, fitness, diet, those things, we tend to self-select self-help things or, you know, a discipline or athleticism based on personal preference and personality and wiring. There, there's a reason that not everyone is a is a ballet dancer or a boxer or a kung fu master. There, there's unique individuals that are drawn to a certain thing. And so there's already a pre-existent willingness to like, I really, really want to be a bodybuilder or I want to, you know, learn karate so I'm I'm willing. It's going to be really hard. It doesn't make it any easier to deny yourself, but I'm, I'm I have this drive and this desire, and you go there. The difference with Jesus is that all of us, I would argue, you know, again as a Christian, but theologically, we all have this, and by all I mean human beings have this magnetic pull toward something outside of ourselves, something bigger than ourselves, to belong to something. Um, eternal and not temporal to give ourselves over in the name of something beautiful and beyond us. But unlike the kid who sees Muhammad Ali on TV is like, that's what I want to do. It's kind of um, shapeless a- a- until we grow and form. And then, you know, we have to find, we have to, someone like me would say, that's God. That's our God given pull back to God. And once we get there, if we do get there, the invitation of Jesus to self-deny is just really, really not glamorous. You know, that it always feels as if he wants you to deny something that you really just don't want to give mm. up. You know, it, it would honestly, it would be a bit like that kid who wants to learn boxing so bad and Jesus saying like, okay, but this is the thing you have to lay down right now. It feels that way often, you know, and there are, there are aspects of self-denial that Jesus 
to which Jesus will invite us that come easier to us, you know, like he's like, you can't do, you know, like to follow me, you have to lay this down and you're like, that's fine. I don't really care about that. (laughs) But then he goes after the thing that you don't want to give up. He asks you to, you know, we're fine with Jesus telling us to be nice to people if that's your personality and wiring. But then he wants to tell you how your money should be spent. Yeah. And you're like, well, don't, don't mess with my wallet, you know, or we're fine with Jesus telling us, how to prioritize the rhythm of our day. And we'll pray, we'll read the Bible, that's fine. But we don't want Jesus to tell us how we can and can't express sexuality or, or something like yeah. that. Yeah. And that's when Jesus will finally step on the toes of like, this has gone beyond self-discipline and you know some beautiful romanticized call to become something great. Now it's become oppressive. Now it's become offensive because mm-hmm. he wants you to give up everything in service to the the greater good. And then it becomes this terrible, painful inner conflict because all of us feel that pull to, to belong to something big and something great. And when Jesus is like, I'm the, I'm the thing, so here's what it takes. And we're like, oh, that's too much. I'll try this other thing instead. And these other things become ultimately superficial. And that, to me, honestly, that was kind of the process of deconstruction. It became a, a movement that was ultimately unfulfilling and and for me a new kind of fundamentalism that traded you know one religiosity for another religiosity and that gateway through no you you have to die you have to actually lay down everything and it's going to be better you're just going to have to trust me it's going to be better hmm. that trust is hard to the, lucky for us jesus you know he, i should be clear he doesn't force you to lay down, for most of us anyway, he doesn't force us to lay down every, it's a process of spiritual formation and it is painful, but it's slow and he's gentle and he's patient and he's kind. Um, I'm making him sound like he's some kind of cruel taskmaster. He's not, but he is the master in the master Mm -hmm. apprentice paradigm. And that's a hard pill for many people to swallow. Man, you know, I'm thinking for our listeners, the guys who are driving to work right now and, and we're talking about deconstruction as kind of a movement and in, in, in general, but I wonder if it, if we zoom in personally for the guys listening, I'm convicted of that, of something you just said, where it's like, at what point does what Jesus say become offensive? And am I still okay to follow the master? And I agree with you. Jesus is so kind and gentle and long suffering and patient and forgiving over and over and over again. But at some point, something he's going to say and ask me to give up and do to follow him in the way of Jesus is going to feel like death. It's going to be less like a postcard and and more like feeling like death and also probably offensive. And so I say all that for the guy who is listening right now and just maybe just to reiterate for you, bro, like what might God be calling you to right now that feels so painful? It feels like death and so offensive. It's like, I don't know if I could do that as you're listening to this, I don't want you to to get so lost in like the a deconstruction conversation that you miss maybe what the Holy Spirit might have for you yeah. specifically right now. I can name like five off the top of my head, won't do this for obvious reasons, but like five people off the top of my head who've gone through the deconstruction movement and they went from like, we were serving together at church to they are so against the ways of Jesus and Christians and Christianity. Like a lot of us wonder like, how do you get there? You know, like, I get to the point where it's like, okay, you know what? I've just, uh, maybe I just don't believe this anymore. It's hard for me to believe. I got caught up on the problem of evil or it seems a little too politicized or my pastor was a hypocrite, so I'm not going to do that anymore. But it seems to swing super hard 
-hmm. Like, not only am I not believing what you're saying, now I'm against what you're saying in some cases. Do you think this is like, I don't know, I guess what I'm stumbling to even come up with a question, but is it like, is it become like a trend? Is it become like trendy to do this? Or like, what do you think is behind all this and, and why so many of us are seeing this? I do think it's become a trend, but I don't mean to oversimplify. And I, I'm, again, I'm saying this as somebody who participated in deconstruction in a, yeah. in a meaningful way. This is not a put on for me. So I do think that the issues that derail faith are real issues and that there's legitimacy to that wrestling and that doubt and to those honest, like, for many of us, often unvocalized, but for others who are deconstructing, they you know they don't mind telling other people, like, I just don't know how I can continue to participate in this in good faith if it means A, B, and C, you know? Yeah. So I, I don't mean to sweep that under the rug, oh, there's no good reason, and But I do think that ultimately deconstruction arrives at an inevitable dead end. And it's a dead end of its own design. And it has two off ramps, if you like. So deconstruction is the, you know, in the at least in the pop culture vernacular, the the process of dismantling the paradigms, the the Christian paradigms that we've been given through upbringing or culture or youth group, whatever it might be that eventually arrive at one of two options. And one is a new fluid spirituality of your own design in which you take the aspects of maybe Jesus that you like. You know, he said, don't judge. That sounds nice. You can put that on a sticker. Or Jesus said, love everybody. And he did. He did say that. So that's nice. You know, you can hashtag that. I don't want him to tell me how to spend money or express sexuality or I don't want him to talk about judgment. I don't, you know, those kinds of things. He can keep those. And then you borrow from other kinds of, usually, I'm, you know, I'm using broad strokes here, but progressive spiritualities, Eastern mysticism, Buddhism, you know, mm-hmm. like Hinduism, usually they're all kind of superficial because, you know, I don't mean that mean-spiritedly. I just mean that you can't be... <laughs> two worldviews that both claim exclusive truth. Right, right. So there's no like actual practical way to exercise that, but you take bits and pieces of the things you like and usually borrow from podcasts and YouTube videos and articles that you've skimmed. And it becomes kind of like a YouTube Gandhi spirituality, mm-hmm. you know? That's one option. So that's a new fluid spirituality of your own design. The other option is just deconversion. And that's when one says, you know what, I just don't believe these things anymore. I'm not a Christian. I'm maybe even not even a a theist. I'm an atheist or agnostic or, you know, you convert to some other worldview. In my personal opinion, deconversion has more integrity than deconstruction because Mm -hmm. it's a more practical and consistent worldview to say, like, I just don't Mm -hmm. believe it anymore. Instead of saying, like, well, I believe some, but not all of it. So it's not really an option. You either kind of take it or leave it. So the the kind of personal pan spirituality, that to me is the dead end because it can't build any kind of meaningful community around itself when every individual is defining you know, their own spiritual worldview completely based on their own whims and what they like and they don't like. There's no shared what we in you know church history call orthodoxy. You know, like this is the code of belief. We hold these things to be true, and we're together on these things. It's more like, hey, what's true for you is good for you, and what's true for me is good for me. And you can come together around what you're against. Like we all hate evangelicalism, or we all hate American Christianity, or whatever. 
that's tribalism. That's not a community. That's just, mm. you know, togetherness defined by anti. Mm. And you can build a little group around that, but it can't have long-term meaningful relationship because there's no vulnerability and no accountability. What can you hold each other accountable to? It's just like, you can't hold me accountable because I define truth for myself. Mm. So deconstruction becomes that dead end that's either the untenable personal pan spirituality or deconversion itself. I think personally, and I'm, you know, I'm not a, the sociologist or a cultural commentator, but it seems to me, even based on, you know, the four decades I've been on the planet, that eventually the deconstruction movement or trend that as we know it in the West will it's kind of derail itself on its own locomotion. Mm. And there will either be mass deconversion where folks just say like, we can't stay here because it makes no sense. So we're just not going to do anything anymore. Or there will be a move back to orthodoxy. And by orthodoxy, I mean like the church, the traditions, the history of the Christian movement. And I've already begun to see and experience myself personally and folks moving from, you know, hyper-fluid, no church, no accountability, no community back into like really rooted, grounded, apostolic faith. I want to go back to what you were talking about at the beginning. And I think it relates to what you were just saying there, kind of like kind of the swing that we'll see. I think that's really interesting about how you you think it will it will derail itself as parents, because a lot of people who are listening to this right now, we have young ones in our home. And a lot of these kids are going to grow up in this culture and that they're going to go through these similar things. So I want to ask, I guess, we'll start with the question when we talked about individualism. It's not even that we're trying to swing into something different, like, hey, let's just be individuals. It's so permanent. We don't know otherwise. This is the culture all of us have grown up in. And so I guess for those of us who still have young hearts and minds in our home that we're trying to raise, how do we raise against that? The deep pool for individualism? And then what is instead, what is Jesus calling us to as parents to try to raise in our kids? I read a fascinating study when I was researching the book that someone had set out to, it was a pretty generous sample size. So I think it was several thousand people that had been raised Christian in America and were still Christian. And they were looking for the whatever common components there might have been, like how did they survive deconstruction? How did they make it through the great pitfalls or what I call the great predators with their faith intact? And the most fascinating of those components to me was that each of them had on average six adults in their life Mm. who followed Jesus faithfully and who were honest about their struggles following Jesus. I read it and thought, okay, so there it's a small group. They're essentially it means mm. that their families were involved in church and or a kind of small group format and you know, obviously there's probably unique expressions of that, but I think one of the greatest gifts that we can give our kids and I have three kids, they're 9, 6 and 3 and so I, this is something that I think about constantly. And I think that we as parents, we tend to, or at least I do, look for the like, oh my God, I need to be doing the thing. I want to, you know, I love my kids. I want to protect my kids. And as a parent, you know, who follows Jesus, one of the most important things to me, if not the most important thing, is that my kids grow up to understand and know and love Jesus and experience what Jesus called the life that's truly life. 
And as somebody who's followed Jesus, you know, I already know that that's not going to be easy. It's going to be painful mm-hmm. and difficult. Mm-hmm. And I'm willing to, you know, go through hell and high water on their behalf for them, but I can't follow Jesus for them. Mm-hmm. But what I can do is give them as much honesty and integrity about my own journey following Jesus. And I can invite other adults into their lives that they can see, like, look, this guy and this woman, they're not perfect, but you know them and they love you and they're trying, they're doing everything they can to follow Jesus with integrity. And they have been for decades and decades Mm -hmm. of their lives. You know, every year on my son's birthday, I bring, you know, some of my close friends, grown men that he knows and that have been in his life since he was born together we all sit at a table and they they go around the table and they bless him they say you know like this is what i see in you this is what i prayed and i asked god you know what he wanted to say to you tonight this is what i feel like i heard from god's spirit there are things that are comprehensible to a 9 year old you know mm-hmm. they're like i saw this image of you and and it's incredible to see the way this kid you know like his chest puffs out and he's just yeah. like you know this dude that I think is cool. And, you know, like I've known he's held me in the hospital. I've never not seen him. (laughs) He goes to my church and he's saying like, you know, like we love you. We'll be here for you in a second if you need us. Mm. As he ages and learns more about these uh, men that have been in my life for years and that will be in his life, he'll see that they're not perfect and he'll understand that we all have our brokenness. But he'll also see, this is my prayer, that there are people, there are those of us who are with all our, you know, warts and all, are really trying to figure out how to follow Jesus well and that yeah. are serious about it. And so I think trying for perfection or the perfect formula or being the dad who never does this thing or the mom who never says this thing, like we say in our house all the time, we're a family that apologizes often and forgives well. You know, I apologize to my kids all the time. Mm-hmm. So they already know, like, oh, dad screwed up. But what I can give them is honesty and vulnerability. And that doesn't mean that I'm not trying. Obviously, you know, I'm in process of spiritual formation and I'm I'm trying very, very hard to follow Jesus with integrity and not make mistakes as a parent. You know, your dudes listen to this, they know it's often a crippling experience. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think that that learning that, learning like, oh my God, that that is one of the things that just, it didn't say that like, oh, there were six adults in their lives that didn't screw up, that didn't fail. It didn't say there were six dudes or six women in their lives that, never had the moral failure, never like questioned the Bible that were always like totally on it. Cause that's unrealistic. That's just a fool's errand. Right. But just, you know, six or seven, half a dozen adults in their life that were honest about their journey following Jesus and still were at it. Like I think the, one of the greatest gifts we can give our kids for the sake of their discipleship is our own faithfulness. Mm. Man, you've given us so many nuggets, dude. But if that's like the thing that guys take away, I think that that would be enough. I was at an event just this week where this guy grew up without a dad. Really powerful story. He, who he thought was his dad, turned out to not be his dad. Then he found the guy that was his dad, went to him, and the guy completely rejected him. So the guy had just rejected by two men who he, one wanted to be his father and one who was his father. What they did at this event was it was just it was a bunch of men, but they just put him in the middle and they, these older guys just gathered around him and prayed over him, like said a blessing over him as like this grown man. And there wasn't a dry eye in the room. You know, that's just like yeah. you, you talk about that, like puff chest. This is who I am. Um, and that is a result of guys coming around me and saying, like speaking identity over me. Dude, they're really, really powerful, powerful things there. 
So thank you for sharing that really practically. I love the the subtitle of your book, and maybe we'll just end our conversation here, but reclaiming faithfulness as an act of rebellion. Can you just like, as you give a kind of a parting word here to our guys, unpack that for us. What does it mean to reclaim the faithfulness as an act of rebellion? Faithfulness by definition is a, is a revolt. You know, it's a, it's rebellion against the status quo. And I, I realize it sounds as if I'm trying to sound all punk rock and cool. <laughs> and I am, you know, I do try to sound <laughs> punk rock and cool. But I do honestly, sincerely believe that if we follow Jesus well, and I don't mean perfectly, but if we set out to follow Jesus with some semblance of consistency and integrity, that we will be at odds with the dominant cultural narratives of the day, the socio-political narratives on the right and the left, mm. the cultural narratives wherever you live, you know, whatever the dominant story is about what it means to be human in, in your upbringing, the way you were raised inside and outside of the church. And I, I, this sounds like I'm almost like I'm trying to brag. I really don't mean it. But my one of my measures of success is that like <laughs> I got an I've gotten angry emails about the book from people who were like, felt as if I was, or here, I'll frame it in the positive. I got celebratory comments that were like, oh, this book's so awesome because he really burns evangelicalism down. And then right next to it, oh, this book's so awesome because he really sticks it to the progressives. You know, <laughs> I don't think that I set out to do either of those things. Mm -hmm. I just think that when we actually set out to follow Jesus consistently, we'll find ourselves kind of homeless in the dominant cultural mm. narrative. So if what you're after is finding a place in the in a tribe, you know, a political party or a cultural tribe or, you know, there will be times and places where you can follow Jesus and feel like you fit in. But ultimately, he's going to ask you yeah. into that next dimension of faithfulness that will make you go like, well, he's the master, not this group, you know, like what mm -hmm. he says is best, not this tribe. And so it becomes this consistent rebellion against the status quo, not these things, the way of mm. Jesus, not this thing, the way of Jesus. And understanding that, understanding that the prerequisite to Jesus' self-denial and rebellion against the way that things are puts us in a position to more faithfully follow Jesus. So to me, that's what I'm interested in, is reclaiming the rebellious nature of the way of Jesus, not to sound cool or punk rock or really stick it to the progressives or the evangelicals, but the idea that like this is the one thing and I'm fine if I will be alienated from all the other things as long as you know I have faithfulness to him. Man. Josh, I was coming into this conversation expecting to talk about a topic and uh, be pointed towards or enlightened to a little bit more about a topic. And all of that set aside, I think I was just pointed closer to Jesus. And I have a feeling that our listeners can relate to that. And anyone who reads your book is going to find that too, that you're probably just going to find yourself a little bit closer to Jesus as a result. So dude, thank you for pointing us back to him, the most important thing that we've been talking about and uh, for taking the time to share your heart with us, bro. Oh, dude, thanks for having me, man. I had a good time. Hey, guys, I hope you enjoyed that interview. We want to keep these conversations going. They're super important, and I know it's hard to find other guys to have these kind of conversations with. So jump into our community, connect.dadtire.com. You can find in-person meetups and also online meetups, or you can just talk online with other guys around the country and around the world who are passionate about these same kind of topics. So again, go to connect.dadtire.com. You can jump into that community for free connect.dadtire.com. Love you guys. We'll see you next week.